Hello, and welcome to Forecast, the Foreshadow podcast, which seeks to offer glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. In this, our second season, we are diving deeper into the concept of vocation. Our theme is Called Forth, Vocation and Faith. The guiding questions we will consider are, who are we called to become, and what are we called to do? Though I'm confident we will never fully or universally answer these questions, I'm sure that we will glean something of value from each of our guests. I'm Will Shine, today's host, and with me is my friend, uh, the Reverend Ryan Fasani. How you doing, Ryan? <laughs> I'm doing well. It's great. I'm doing well, Will. It's great to talk to you, and I'm honored to uh, be in this conversation. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. Ryan and I, uh, our connection, as that sort of seems to be a thing that we clarify uh, in at least all of my episodes, uh, is that we both were in the Hawaiian Islands in and around the same time, uh, though we were not on the same island, but a part of the same district conglomeration of of uh, misfits. I mean, uh, uh, of you know, folks out there trying to do some some things. And so we were both guys from California originally who um, who ended up in Hawaii for a time and then ended up not in Hawaii again. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm sure that might come up a little bit. But Ryan, who are you? Why are you? Where are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing these days, uh, and anything that you think the listener might need to know about you to frame our conversation for today. Sure. Um, my story begins in suburban California, uh, which comes with all kinds of stereotypes, uh, most of which I accept. Um, I was born into a family of only boys, so I had four brothers and no sisters. Both my parents were educators and both college athletes, and so you can imagine how competitive the environment wow. was in which I grew up in. Um, quick little side note, uh, just to give you an a glimpse of what it was like in our home to to get dessert we had to do push-ups and pull-ups um, and and if we didn't do enough in a row then we were out of luck so I grew up in this highly competitive but but very rich um, and, and unified kind of home environment um, which that may we may f- come back around to that because it really informed sort of how I pursued a career into adulthood but nonetheless um, and I went to college um, in California, too, down in San Diego. Um, from there, got got married very early and bounced around. I've lived um, in every quadrant of the country on both coasts, even on in the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, took a trip for a few years out through Nashville, Tennessee, where I got my graduate degree, um, Master's of Divinity, to be specific. Um, and I have been in some version of vocational ministry since then, which was the early 2000s. I currently reside in the Pacific Northwest of the Pacific Northwest. So if you looked at a map of, of Washington, way up in the upper left corner, I live in a town called Bellingham. Um, I'm I'm closer to Vancouver, British Columbia than I am to Seattle um, by a long shot. So I'm very close. Um, and, I'm, and I'm currently doing ministry up here, and I'm sure we'll unpack what that means. Uh, but here I am. I have a, a family of six. I'm one of six, two boys, two girls. We live on a farm and have 14 milk goats currently. Wow. That is a lot. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, we it's it's that time of year where our herd swells and then it shrinks as we sell them off. But of course, um, you know, fourteen or or six to someone who has zero milk goats seems like a handful, and it always is. But uh, we have a small goat dairy, we have a small market farm, we have a permaculture, you know, herb gardens and and such, and uh, are sort of building out the pr- productivity um, capacity of the five acres we live on. So. Cool. Wow. Wow. Uh, I know our, our previous guest, Sarah DePhillips, is smiling wherever she sits to hear about uh, subsistence and then beyond subsistence, it sounds like, farming enterprises that you're a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, dang. That's, uh, that's awesome, man. I, uh, I, I can't imagine most of that, honestly. <laughs> uh, your childhood a little bit, uh, except for the whole, they probably should have made me do push-ups and pull-ups uh, for dessert. I just got a lot of dessert, I feel like. <laughs> and that has had consequences down the road. Uh, all to say, you, you said the V word just a moment ago, and that's kind of what we've been talking about this season. Um, we've been talking about vocation. You also disclosed to us uh, that you did a Master's of Divinity degree, uh, and uh, you've been in uh, uh, air quotes ministry and then not air quotes ministry, I guess, uh, for, for some time. Um, tell us a little bit about what that word vocation means to you. How do you define it? How did you come to understand it? How has it maybe uh, transformed over time as well? Yeah, it's probably helpful to name my earliest understanding because that was the framework um, through which I understood the, the kind of my first formal steps towards pastoral ministry. And that came in high school. And I'm sure you've had plenty of guests that have kind of named this uh, either high school or young adult, young adult sort of moment mm. where they kind of heard the call towards feeling, you know, whatever it is, X um, ty- type of ministry role. And, and I was no different in high school. I heard, um, and again, not an audible voice here, but just a potent urge um, external of myself to fulfill the role of pastor. And back then, which again is a critical, um, though it's changed since, a critical um, framework for me was the, the role of an evangelical pastor, right? Which was a pastor of a largely disconnected from a broader network of churches. So some people might call it a non-denominational church or a community church. Hmm. And they conceive um, of a pastor in a very particular way, which is predominantly an orator mm-hmm. on Sunday morning. And so early on in, in my teenage years, I was called and, and uh, was affirmed by those around me, a gifting towards orating orate, orating or uh you know verbalizing articulating the good news of jesus christ mm-hmm. um and again in a very limited way um in an evangelical setting um on up front on a sunday morning right so i was called to be a speaker preacher now that has entirely changed over time but it's important to name that because sure. what because that it, it, because the, that's the framework that I'm always reckoning with, sure. right? Um, yeah. Especially when I either do or don't um, come to like a like a, a resonance with my current call. Um, sometimes that's grounded in the friction created and with where I am now and that mm. original kind of understanding. But where I am now, um, vocation, you know, I'll just I'll sort of cheat and lean on the Latin here. Does mean you know to the call or to call. But something has dramatically shifted in the last, like, maybe five or eight years, 
Whereas when I was younger, I thought that call was from a God that was external of myself. Mm. I've come to learn um, that that call, while it's from God, this this concept of distance is entirely shrunk for me, mm. right? Like it, if the call is from anywhere, it's a call from deep within, right? And the call is not something we hear at a kind of a mountaintop experience when we're in the wilderness, uh, literally in the wilderness or at a summer camp or at a men's retreat. The call is the result of continuing to do the work of understanding oneself deeply, mm. right? Mm. Um, some, some that I deeply respect refer to this. I think Thomas Merton, I think maybe had coined it, you know, 60 or 70 years ago um, when we encounter our true self. Mm. Um, and it's in that true self that we encounter the very imminence of the divine, and so the calling is an encounter with an ever kind of, you know, disclosure of who we really are when we do the work of understanding ourselves. And for me, I would have gotten off the ship a long time ago if yeah. I didn't also, after hearing the call as a young man, young man from God to be a speaker, if I hadn't also in later life discovered a true self that deeply resonated with an orientation towards what I would call gospel centered type of work, then I would have sort of gotten off the bus or gotten off the boat or something. Um, right. So for me to, you know, to sort of, you know, tighten that up here and, and come back around vocation to me is an encounter with the voice within. And that voice emanates from kind of the, the imminent presence, the closeness of a God that is sort of both fully divine and fully within us. Wow. Wow. I mean, there are some, uh, so many things coming to my mind that was also such a eloquent and beautiful articulation of vocation. Firstly, uh, secondly, I, there are certain, um, uh, theological notions and ideas that come up and, and we try not to get too into the weeds with that stuff for, for this sort of audience and, or, uh, just in general, cause we'll get ourselves into trouble and say something that we don't quite know truly. Um, but that reminds me of of uh, of a word uh panentheism um where there are there are different camps obviously in 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 the spectrum of sort of theological opinion and and writings over the ages about where god is the the onto ontological dimensions of like god and and creation um and in, in, in what is God or is God apart from things? You know, those are, those are big questions that are really actually foundational and fundamental questions because they, they help us, I think, reckon with, um, like what you said, you can only articulate a sort of, I, I think, like a, a version of calling or vocation such as you have if you also then have a sense of God's sort of imminence, like you kept saying, or presence and presence participation in the substance of things almost. And I don't know if that's quite what you're saying. Um, but, uh, I certainly kind of like that, that notion came to me. Uh, and it's something that's uh, to, to put my cards on the table is appealing to me as well. Um, uh, uh, which is a departure from people like, you know, maybe if people are Carl Bart fans out there or things like that, that God is sort of like transcends those things and is, is, mm -hmm never in stuff apart from mm -hmm. God's self. Again, that we can get into the weeds there theologically, mm -hmm. but am I hearing a panentheistic sort of uh, dimension to what you're saying? 
You are indeed hearing an affirmation that God is within all things. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And but but I want to go a little bit further, and not in some like you know theological spinoff or something. I want to go um, uh, one step further in a way that I think would connect to the listeners, and that is this: I didn't arrive at this understanding of vocation as in like a cognitive exercise. Like this sure. wasn't some esoteric, esoterically <laughs> attractive concept. Right. I came to, the, I arrived with this conviction because when I was in my darkest, therein I found God. And if God is ever present, even in my lowest and darkest moments, where is and what is God not willing to encounter and be present with? Sure. Right. And, and that, that was the impetus for sort of this trajectory of my understanding, the very concept of vocation. Um, and so, and, and I say that that's something that I think listeners will connect with because if we, I think I find, well, I find that most often when you ask people to reflect on the painful moments of their lives, hmm. they, I sort of ironically also find those to be the most potent encounters with God in their lives. Sure. Right. Um, we tell the story the other way, unfortunately, that mm. God is in these elated moments uh, of, of excitement and celebration, which is not totally untrue. It's just sort of partly true. Like what's really true, I think, for everybody is, yeah, sure, God is in those. But like, when would, did you deeply weep like from your belly mm. or when were you completely hollow because that relationship like detonated mm. and, you know, and five or 10 or 15 years forward reflecting back you realize like those were profoundly there was a profound presence in those moments and mm. and to, and to just push it even one little step further and it's not necessarily how we how we sort of expect god to be present mm. like yeah who was that friend that unexpectedly brought you dinner mm. when you were grieving the loss of your mother yeah there god was right, right? like so in some ways, I'm I'm just wanting to set, like expand like the limitations we've put uh, on how God ought to show up and be present, and so in doing that in terms of vocation, well, God can sure God can sort of like be the bugle from the mountaintop, but I mean I I don't see that all the time in in, in you know the biblical narrative, and I definitely don't see that in my own life, and then down to the particular like yeah sure God can show up in the affirmation of some like ontological truth or something like that but god sure. also can very much show up in the presence you know of a child who just wants to cuddle and like soothes a weary heart at the end of a hard work day yeah right and i and i and i and i and i would go so far to say you know that well i don't like to make sort of universal claims on behalf of other people but i would love to hear from someone else that hasn't experienced right, that yeah, outside, yeah. you know some around profound level but so there you have it. Well, that's, I mean, it's good that you say that too. And, and, and I hope the listener takes note because we have uh, recently started getting feedback from people and some sort of engagement. So there you go, listener. Here's an opportuni opportunity to, uh, to holler back at Ryan and uh, let them know, uh, let him know about, you know, our, uh, experiences that you've had that, that resonate with that or sound parallel in some way. Um, Getting in sort of to the weeds, uh, and this is not necessarily a, a backtrack. You've kind of give us an, given us an overview 
um, and a conceptual overview at that of vocation in your life and as it sort of evolved. Uh, can you talk a little bit more specifically about uh, some of sort of your path and your journey to date uh, in ministry? We've recently had a, a guest who is a full-time uh, uh, a pastor and kind of operates within a, a, con- a local congregational context. And I think when people hear the word pastor or minister or vocation of ministry, they start sort of creating, you know, parameters and boundaries. And and this, the, the gentleman we just interviewed, that Josh interviewed, I mean, he was doing incredible things in his community of Roanoke, Virginia, that were far beyond just the scope of orating on Sunday morning, uh, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. Um, but uh, you specifically, I, I think, are an, are, are an interesting uh, person at this juncture and in, in relation to that, because you've taken sort of uh, a call to pastoral ministry yet a step further. But uh, to get there, if you will, uh, tell us a little bit about sort of the beginnings like you did and then where you've kind of how this trajectory has taken shape and this path has evolved and meandered and Anything else you think is helpful to understanding that conceptual vocation as it's been manifested in your your experiences? Sure. You know, if when you say the word pastor, every conceivable iteration that people are imagining, I'm pr- I'm pretty confident I've done that role. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like I've literally been the junior high pastor, the senior high pastor the associate pastor, the senior pastor, the compassion ministry pastor. I've done nonprofit ministry directing. I've done church planting. I've done large church pastoring. I've been a staff pastor at small church or a staff pastor at large churches. I've been the senior pastor at small churches. I've been in what you might call suburban America pastor. Mm -hmm. I've been on the fringe in, you know, the Hawaiian islands, which is some hybrid of missions and pastoral ministry, like literally every iteration of pastoring in the last 20 plus some change years I've done. Right. Right. But there's a bit of an arc to that story. Right. And at the peak of that arc, if you will, something started to break for me Hmm. and it wasn't, the idea of a pastor. We get this idea, you know, we get this sort of notion that, you know, the idea doesn't work and we go through quote unquote, a season of deconstruction where we deconstruct the ideas that we sort of were given mm-hmm. as children and, and such. And then, and then the process all the way to reconstruction again is sort of like the piecing together back of ideas. And it, to me, it wasn't at all an ideation issue mm-hmm. or a conceptual issue. When the first crack in, you know, this vessel of what we might think when we think of pastors was when I was planting a church within a larger church in Nashville. So I was at a a much larger traditional church um, in Nashville, Tennessee, um, arguably the most church town in all of America. (laughs) And this was a flagship church for the denomination that I was and still am in. And um, I was given the liberty to plant a church sort of in the uh, fellowship hall slash basketball court. <laughs> right. Um, again, sort of stereotypical. And and I did, all I knew to do was just ask my friends if they wanted to participate. And I don't need to get into why it was a unique church planting you know, method method or anything like that. Sure. The point is, I just asked my friends. And at the time, I had a lot of homeless friends. 
mm-hmm. by by virtue of where I live, by virtue of people that I enjoy being with. Um, and those friends um, had a lot of other homeless friends and working chronically poor and working poor um, friends. And then, of course, it was sort of cool to plant a church with this eclectic group of people. And so I had some college folks and young, young professionals. So we had this really eclectic group of people that gathered in a gymnasium, ate lots of food together, broke bread, had the, you know, shared Eucharist and listened to like a five minute little reflection slash sermon. And, and that's all well and good. And, and it, and it grew and, um, it sort of like was pushing out at the seams of the sanctuary. And that it was, that was fine. Um, and the relationship between the two churches was congenial, all okay. But the host church for which I was on staff with did not have the capacity to bear the pain in my congregants' lives. Mm. They didn't have the time. They didn't have relational skill set. They didn't have the emotional IQ to even process what it meant to be to grow up in urban America, in the grips of poverty, in under like the oppressive nature of like racial tensions, mm-hmm. and 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 you can sort of ramify out like all the other sort of like wrinkles and layers there. Sure. And there was literally no capacity to hold the pain of my congregation. And so I found myself an advocate. I found myself an educator, not to my, not to the people that I consider myself a pastor of, but to the congregation that was entirely clueless. And I realized that the church in America in its sort of evangelical imagination, not only didn't have the capacity to hold process and befriend some of that pain, like they had no reason to. It was an organizational structure that was not that created in an insular environment that was altogether immune from that interaction. Like it was built to be segregated from the pains of urban America. Wow. And you look around at evangelical churches in America, particularly the ones that are growing, particularly the ones with really good looking pastors with really cool hair <laughs> and whatever i mean let's just name it It, it's true like that's an asset yeah and they are strategically located and it's not in urban epicenters that are intentionally ethnically diverse and economically diverse okay i don't need to be on a soapbox i'm just naming anecdotally where it started to crack for me and i thought oh my gosh i am I've, i've given myself to this tribe and there's there's literally there is no skill set here to to work through any number of 50 issues that I encounter every single day of the week. Right. That was when it, that's when it start, started to crack. And the whole thing broke. Are you ready for this? The whole thing broke when those issues became my issues. And mm. I mean that in, I mean that kind of in a, in like a empathetic way, right? Like right. these were my people and the, the closer our lives wove together, the more I took on some of those burdens. But I don't only mean that. I mean, like, when my world got, when my world shattered and when my right. world broke, the, now, I, now I didn't have the capacity myself to be the teacher and the advocate. Like, I needed somebody that had the skill set to process and to still affirm my call, and it was, and it returned void. Mm. And when it became, 
and a lack of ability to hold me as a pastor, as one that was called to this type of vocational ministry, I realized there's got to be another way. Yeah. There has to. There has to be another way. And so that was that was about 10 years ago. And um, I, I'm going to fold all the way back around because if you remember, my definition, my very definition of vocation is hearing a call, but a call that is deeply from within us when we encounter right. our true self, which is the very call of God, mind you. And I realized, you know, at that point that things must change. And over the, mm. you could tell, I could tell the last 10 years of my, you know, my sort of vocational story in further becoming more intimate with my true self, mm. which was already deviant from the original structure. Yeah. Like I, I, I have arrived at the understanding of myself that was always there anyways. Mm. Right, and I continue to be affirmed in that when I realize that deep within me is a call to have to create capacities to hold that brokenness and to offer genuine and sincere lasting solutions. That's always been there. Right. Right? That's always been there. Um so it began to crack about ten years ago, and the last ten years has literally been an a kind of an unreserved exp- exploration of new models of being, you know, a gospel centered community. Um, a body of people imagining alternative realities that have the capacity to hold brokenness and offer mm. solutions. Right. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. And so, you know, and we could sort of like sideline the first 10 or 15 years and then talk about, you know, the next six, seven or eight, because that's where it gets really colorful because it has to, right. Yeah. Like, it, like it has to, it has to explore the frontier of possibilities of, how pe- you know people are formed and how communities are shaped and how you know traditions are transferred and transmitted and and such. So um, anyhow, I'll hand it back to you. Yeah, well, uh, that that word traditions, you know, in some ways, you mentioned before, um, anecdotally, that you know this the church that you were at in Nashville was was in the denomination that you are still a part of. So at some level. Um, there is, there must be some, I don't know if bandwidth is the right word, but there might, there must be some flexibility and nuance within this denomination to afford you what sounds like a, uh, a transcending sort of, uh, models that you've then sort of gone for and participated in. I know that when, you know, it's interesting. I, I I reflect, I, I first encountered you uh, and this would be true for my co-host Josh too, if he was in chapel that day at a Point Loma University chapel in our junior year. When this, I think at the time, like you said, uh, compassionate ministries pastor from Nashville, <laughs> Tennessee, came and spoke in our chapel and and just just brought it down. And he just, you know, we like I I can I can rem- vividly remember the emotion that you brought and the stories that you told and and. I can now, you know, it's so interesting to hear those frustrations so well articulated as you just did and to see you processing them in that moment and remember that moment when you spoke. Mm -hmm. Um, It's wild then that, you know, a few years down the road from there, we were both in Hawaii where you were trying some very uh, innovative and and unique things, I would say. Uh, I love that like sort of like transformative gospel community idea, you know, that that was that was what you were doing. And I think it's so interesting. I, I can, I mean, I don't want to speak too authoritatively to this, and this is not to disparage any of the, the, the people that we were alongside of on the district there. 
but I feel like sometimes folks did not grasp what you were going for. <laughs> and I think that was true of locally to where you were. And I think that was true of on a larger scale. Uh, how have you mitigated uh, and stayed within a, a sort of tribe of people, use that word again too, um, that that perpetually misunderstand or or don't quite get the vision or don't want to participate in or outright reject what you're what you're trying to do living into this calling that you, that you've made you know or that you've articulated as being deeply personal and yet having sort of this outpouring in and for the world how have, how have you navigated that and contended with that yeah um my ministry work has been at least one decade of a perpetual explanation to people that don't get what I'm doing. And, and from, I mean, from day one, when I planted a church and tried to do it with people who had no money, it didn't register, it didn't register as potentially quote successful. It didn't register. And I remember the first time somebody used this term and I, I kid you not, the hairs are just again as if it was yesterday are standing up on my neck and they asked me what the ROI was going to be on this church I was planting in an urban environment and and oh, and no. to his, and to his credit that is the that is his line of work that's the field he works in i, th- I believe he was a cpa um i didn't even know what the acronym meant back then to be quite honest so moment of confession. I was a little green behind the ears when he asked me. So I quick looked it up and I just cringed. And and that's not to say, you know, for our listener to tell them what ROI or it's return on investment, right, right? right? It's like, what are you going to get in return for, you know, the resources you're putting in? And that could be money. That could be time. That could be any form of in-kind assets or whatever, like whatever right. the point, the point is what's the return. On, what's the return here? Right. And, um, and that's a pretty hard. And, and when that, whoever frames the discussion gets to determine the answers. Yes. Right. And, and if you frame it that way, my answer is always going to be, it's not, and I'm going to fail. But I, I knew that wasn't the answer. And so I had to, so for 10 years, I've been trying to reframe the conversation about what success is in ministry, what it looks like to be truly transformed and so on and so forth. Um, But to answer your question more specifically, um, how do I stay a part of a tribe? Look, you know, just in the same way we can stereotype the concept of pastor, we can stereotype groups of pastors that make organizations called denominations, right? I've been fortunate enough along the way to meet some incredibly creative, open-minded, um, and even, dare I say, entirely radical people that somehow stay in the Nazarene denomination. And I don't mean to sort of pick on Nazarene tribe because I find this true with, you know, colleagues that are in any tribe, but right. there, we, we, we know this, um, from outside of ministry. We know that, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner, like the entire family could have voted, you know, Republican, but it, it's like a breath of fresh air when you finally meet the uncle that has sort of been like hiding, you know, and actually yeah. <laughs> likes Bernie Sanders or something like that. And this isn't like a political little, a little mini political rant as much as to say, like, we know what that's like. We right. can stay. We'll right. be at Thanksgiving next year. 
right? <laughs> because we know yeah. Uncle Jim is going to show up and yeah. he's like a solace to like our, our weary hearts or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. no one can exist as part part of a tribe if the tribe is entirely an Icelandic experience. So I've really grabbed a hold of the people that I've found within the tribe that are remarkable and creative and 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 provide a, a, an environment of expansivity and openness, right? Um, and then sort of on top of that, um, beyond just sort of connecting with amazing people that I've found here and there and everywhere um, as I've sort of scratched around in the denomination, I've also um, been given, unlike so many of my friends, some a lot of which have left the ministry, a lot of latitude to be creative. So mm. even though I've been working overtime to explain what I'm doing, <laughs> right. often to you know with a lack of success and um, and I, I usually blame myself for being unable to articulate it. Um, and then secondarily to try to like reframe the conversation itself yeah. um, and purge myself of the acronym ROI altogether. <laughs> um, I yeah. have, uh, you know, sort of serendipitously or to a nod to, you know, the more theologically inclined providentially, <laughs> you know, have, have um, part been a part of leadership structures um, namely district superintendents and other larger church pastors that have like advocated for the latitude of mm -hmm. my work for me to have latitude in my work. And in their words, um, just to sort of summarize, because if we don't have, um, research and development branch of this organization, yeah, we'll die, we'll do, we'll die, you know, in 20 years. Right? right. So it's always under the sort of like guise of like, we need people on the frontier exploring, even if they fail. Sure, and, I, and I've been fortunate to have some of those people advocating for me and giving me space, um, even while I'm like working overtime to sort of reframe the conversation. Wow, so. yeah, that's yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I, so so much I could uh, you know interject, but I I, I, I won't for the sake of uh, this being uh, an interview with you and not me. <laughs> but uh, oh gosh, yeah, just things that I remember and or things that I that you've tr now triggered for me as well. I'm going, oh boy, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, kind of turning the corner. Um, as you are in the sort of northwest of the northwest now, you've got a, a, a subsistence slash uh, market farm that you run with your family. Uh, and that's a collaborative effort, obviously. Uh, as we've thought about calling and vocation, uh, this year with some of our guests, we've teased out ways in which um, they may express or live into a calling in terms of jobs that they do or sort of career paths that they take, but that they also are deeply relational people and, and it's important for them to um, uh, maintain, whether it's maintain or invest in the people who are around them. How have you found uh, doing that, I guess? Yeah, doing maintaining that investment in, in the people who are closest to you, uh, not to say your congregants or people that you've been a part of with in, quote, you know, ministry experiences, but with your own family. And, and you have quite a large family and goats. So uh, how, have you, uh, how have you invested in those folks around you um, so that they and or been invested in by those folks so that you've... Um, kind of honored your 
another dimension of your vocation or your, your calling to be what they need you to be or who you think you ought to be mm-hmm. to and for them? Mm-hmm. That's a, a potent question, not in that the substance of it is somehow like explosive or too difficult to answer, but it's a potent question because any pastor that's reckoned with their own failure to, to do well in their own domicile knows that there's an ever, an, an ever increasing, it feels, tension with what the work demands and what the and what the family needs Mm. and and i went through a season where i thought that this was this was true in any any field but i'm realizing that when um as my children age that there's a unique demand in the pastoral ministry world um that is never ceasing and And the needs of children is always the first thing that's sacrificed. Hmm. And so I'm going to answer this in a way that's sort of part confession and um, hopefully encouraging and sort of like a, like a sideways way to people that are hmm. listening. Sure. I have, Will, I have totally failed in this way. Hmm. Um, because... And if you remember the environment I grew up in, it was right. hyper competitive, right? Yeah. And when you marry a, a bottomless, a bottomless well of need, with a hyper competitive disposition, and by the way, an enneagram eight, there you go. <laughs> you get the makings of an egomaniac. I, I mean, I'm just totally confessing. You, sure. Like somebody that could literally work on four hours a night of sleep, be up at 4 a.m., knocking down tasks and taking no prisoners and going to bed at 11 or 12 p.m. or 11 or 12 a.m. the the next night and not not get tired. Yeah. Because the thrill of the competition is enough to sustain you for years and years and years. Wow. Okay, you hold that in one hand and then you hold the... Again, bottomless, un- insatiable need of children, mm-hmm. and you have irreconcilable needs. Wow. And I've had to come to grips with this m- massive conflict that I necessarily hold by virtue of the type of work that I do. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, A, like I just am not good at it, right? Like... For what what for whatever reason, it's the appeal of achievement that has gotten the better of me. In later in in more recent years, um, I hate to thank the pandemic for anything, but I will give it a generous nod in this situation. <laughs> I it afforded me the space to minister in in very intentional on using that term to minister to the hearts of my own children. And Mm. I mean that in every dimension of that word. And because that's the case, I realize that the front, the real frontier of ministry is not the new innovative ways of connecting to a world of which this, the church or, you know, sort of Christian institutions are sort of 
decentered at this point. The real frontier of ministry is, for me, is innovative ways to reconnect and nurture the souls of my children, right? Mm. And and that and I should add that doesn't look like all of a sudden I become a hermit and only have you know like really solemn whispering conversations with my daughter over chai tea on Wednesday mornings, which right. actually sounds actually pretty cool, yeah. but, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. I mean that there, there's a universe of the inner life that also must be explored. Right. And yeah. also has edges and horizons and folds and nuances that if I just consider her a girl that's prepubescent and needs a dad around three hours a week to point her in the right direction, I've entirely failed her. Right. Sure. And so, you know, so there's this whole other kind of vocational call that I'm entering into. Um, mm. It could sort of be partly the, you know, the, the result of my age or, I mean, I've already given a nod to COVID and things slowing down and stuff, but it's this, it's a whole new fold of my call, which is like, answers the question, you know, how do I be pastorally present and how do I witness to good news and how do I offer life amidst death to these children that are emerging into a world that none of us have ever seen before. Right. Right. And, you know, at best here I am, I'm, you know, I'm not like, I'm not ancient or anything, but I'm no longer, you know, the youngest pastor in the room, if you will. But here I am, <laughs> you know, in the, in the middle somewhere. And it's like, Oh, this is the tension that I have to hold. Mm. Like, I don't necessarily have to be the, you know, 27 year old, you know, like sprinter, you know, for, and get four hours of sleep a night. And, oh, no, I like I don't have to entirely detach and only connect to my children on the day off, you know, on my day off. But there's there's like a really creative and beautiful tension when I hold those together and I conceive of my call like like legitimately fulfilled in my work and presence with them. And likewise, when I slow down a little bit and perceive of my call, you know, in less about sort of like accomplishing tasks and being creative and discovering new, you know, frontiers in ministry and more in present, you know, through the very people that I've sort of naturally encountered in my neighborhood. Right. Yeah. And so there's, there's sort of this like kind of like third wave of understanding my call as like holding that creative tension of my personal life, personal relationships, and then, you know, some of the really creative kind of like ministry redefining work that I do in the world. So that's awesome. Yeah, we, we've talked, uh, my friend Ryan was on the podcast a month ago or so, and we talked about sort of an integrated, uh, what we kind of gleaned from him was this sense of like, as, as best as he can be, he's pretty fully integrated. He's a, a, a biochemist and a professor now here at uh, UGA where I'm where I'm at in Athens Georgia and uh, yeah but but he's he's got a, just a brand new baby and a two-year-old and a wife you know and and he's a musician and, and finding uh, those things have not they don't compete for they don't they, like he doesn't imagine them as com competitive for attention sort of uh, and even if he does the way it sort of like works out and obviously everybody's experience of his participation in their life or lab or whatever is their own. But um, I th it seems like as if he can kind of be fully himself in all of those spaces. And that's when he says his, his best self as well. And that's when he's, you know, best for them um, when he brings all of who he is into those spaces and, uh, and, and nothing has to sort of like win, I guess, in, in the conventional sense, that's hard to explain. And I, I don't want to, mm -hmm. 
repaint his story in the in the wrong way. Um, but that's that's very cool how you've articulated that. And I, I love what you said too. Frontiers of ministry is something I'd I'd love to pick up on. Um, I think the listener can sort of gather at this point that you are not a Sunday morning orator anymore, <laughs> or at this point, uh, at least not frequently. You are also not a hermit whispering over uh, chai. In uh, uh, you are something in between. It sounds like. And that has been something that has evolved, I know, in time. Uh, tell us a little bit about the ways, uh, blow our minds, if you will, uh, for those of us who cannot conceive of, 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 of quote, ministry uh, apart from a four-walled uh, church building and a liturgy that we all sit it through of some sort. And then, you know, and maybe that word even frightens folks. Who knows? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and and what that looks like. What are the frontiers of ministry? Yeah, I'll. Uh, how about I do this? I'll I'll tell you the title I bear. I'll tell you how I spend my time, and then I'll use those to help answer. You know, what's the frontier of the ministry that I'm? That's great. Doing. I I, I will the, say too before you before you kick in. I, I I do realize that some of what you've said about frontiers of ministry. It's it struck me that. It's frontiers are not places all the time, or at least geographies um, on maps. You know what I mean? They're, they sure. are geographies, if you will, but they're 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 different spaces and different things. So right. I thought that's kind of cool, and I'm sure you'll tease that out now too. But anyways, uh, please continue. Yeah. On paper, I'm a church planter. Okay. Um, and just to, to be fair and to keep it easy, that means starting new congregations, and I and I accept that. That's, I'm not like trying to deviate from every, every terminology that, that ever existed in the ministry world. Church planting for the Nazarene denominations means starting new works would be kind of the, the nomenclature we would use. And, and I embrace that and I fully practice that. Um, and when people ask me what I do, I tell them I'm a pastor, church planner, minister. Um, so that's what I am on paper. In practice, my time is split up kind of three ways. Um, a third of my time, loosely again, a third of my time is what would be considered um, to the most listeners kind of traditional uh, pastoral responsibilities, meeting with people, um, you know, Bible study, book studies, sort of explorations of the truths of the scriptures and of resources within the tradition, um, pastoral counseling work, responding to, you know, people in crisis and stuff. So sort of traditional pastoral work. Um, in that, I would consider um, the time I invest in starting new congregations. So just even if it's just a small gathering of exploring what it's like to gather as a faith community in the 21st century, all of that would kind of be a third of my time. A third of my time, I'm a farmer. Um, and if you're picturing somebody like on a John Deere, like with like, you know, 700 feet of rows of corn behind them it's not at all like that if you picture like if you've ever been to a farmer's market which i hope you are or hope you've been regularly um and you see like the young family that's like selling you know a thousand radishes and 17 you know heads of lettuce and you sort of like the assortment out on the tables with their beat up truck behind them and little kids running around like that would have been my family like 10 years ago Right. Um, and I just have older kids, so I don't have little kids running around. But what But if you followed them back to their plot of land that they steward um, from which they harvest to take to market, it would probably model 
how we manage our land and invest in stewarding the space and also you know how we um sort of glean as much as possible um mm -hmm. in terms of edible production from the, um the five acres we're on that's a third of my time and i'll get back to why that's a third of my time and then a third of my time um Again, loosely, this one gets probably the least amount, but whatever, for the sake of a nice little pie chart, a third of my time, is attempting to articulate what it is I do in the other two times, right? Now, some some of that writing and sermon prep and stuff for a sort of a traditional evangelical pastor, if you will, would just fit into the pastoral responsibility part. But I, I separate it out because I'm trying to do something different in my writing, right? I'm really doing, and here's sort of a buzzword, but whatever, for, for, for the... Um, for ease of time or speed of time and brevity, I'm writing in an attempt to do two things. One, reframe the conversation about what ministry is, which we talked about already. Right. And, and within that conversation, um, totally reframing what success means. Um, and then also reconstructing, reconstructing a faith um, that does have, again, heart getting back to early in the conversation that has the capacity to hold those com the complexities of pain that initially got me on mm. you know so this creative innovative trajectory yeah. right? so the majority of my writing is trying to make sense out of both how, how I spend my time but even more to put even a more a sharper edge a more intentional edge on that it's really trying to re um, imagine old forms and old language and uh, old practices in a way uh, that is formidable enough and robust enough to contain um, the complexities of this bizarre and wonderful world that's emerging faster than any of us can handle. Right. Right. And so, you know, to, to sort of pare that down, that this sort of third of my, my work, this writing piece, it would look something like taking, a, now this doesn't always happen, but this is an example, taking an old story from, you know, Sunday school class that we all have just agreed to understand, you know, to accept a certain interpretation of, like the return of the prodigal son. Sure. Like you can ask anybody that's been to, ch in, to church twice and they've probably, A, heard that story and B, know what it's about. It's about unlimited forgiveness for people that have, you know, lived in wayward ways or something like that. Yeah. What I would do in my writing is I would take that, I'd pull out the pieces, I would explore it. I call it multi-sensory immersion, where you you encounter every piece of that story with your the entirety of your body, your sense of smell, your cognition, whatever, and then put it back together. And it never comes back together in the same way. Right, right. You realize, you know, just to sort of run with this, you realize, particularly in that story, oh, there's a second son and he's lost too. Yeah, <laughs> he has, yeah, he yeah. has his own. He has his own kind of you know childish tantrum, and what's happening there? Oh, yeah. and you have this. You have this father in that story too. Oh, and he's sort of lost too. Like who actually lets their son spend half the wealth? Yeah. And like, you know, and then, and 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 you have the sort of fourth silent person who's the mom. What mom doesn't speak in to one of half of their children leaving with the family? Right? Like, oh my gosh, there's so much going on. And you know what? There's so much going on in family dynamics always isn't there. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. you know, an ex you know, that's just a playful example. It's like, sure. Oh, th this, there's a way of reimagining some of these practices, some of these traditions and some of this language that creates not a new faith, but a way more robust faith that can hold some of the challenging, the challenges that we're encountering in the 21st century here. Um, anyhow, so that's sort of three parts, you know, to, yeah. to what I do. Um, to, 
sort of braid those all together, I would say this. Um, what I'm doing looks might go by a, a, a term like I'm planting um, embodied faith communities that are necessarily committed to to remaining small, nimble, and holistic. Something like that, right? Sure. Where I'm I'm utilizing in my case, particularly in my case, and um, this is not prescriptive. This is just a description of what I do. Right. I'm utilizing um, stewarding land and the the praxis of engaging Adama or soil as like a formidable like exercise and nurturing of faith wow. and and nurturing an imagination for a different kind of world right and so it, you could say am i planting a farm church well yeah i'm totally planting a farm church do we mm-hmm. all weed together no we don't all weed together but we but we intersect the realities of like literally cultivating land, not as just metaphor, but as a literal way to embody mm. good news, right? And I'd say, I'd add this um, um, with a threat. Sorry, apologies for maybe going too long, but I would add, I would say this. Speaking specifically to vocation, my understanding of vocation could answer the question by by who or by who am I being called? And we've discussed that by the divine that's within. You could also ask, for what are we being called? Right, right. Or to, to what, yeah. or to what are we being right. called? Right. And this is one way where I realize that I deviate, not sort of like in a subversive way, just sort of do by nature of being creative, from a traditional answer. Whereas, you know, historically the church might be something you know defined as like, you know, where, you know, sacraments are administered and the good news is preached or something like that. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Um, or, or as generically as like, where two are gathered, there is the church, which has absolutely no shape, but is also not something I'm opposed to. Okay. For me, the, the church, and I'm using that in a particular way, that the gathered people that can, like adhere to this tradition called followers of Christ or the way or something like that is, is, can be those, but is not in my practice. In me, for me, the church is a microcosmic solution to macrocosmic problems. Ah, right? Ooh. There are broken systems everywhere. Yeah. And the church are those people that commit to participating and realizing and practicing and often failing, but with the goal of realizing microcosmic solutions, right? Like molecular, like small scale, little, like, vestiges of 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 hope that are that like truly respond to a brokenness in the world so for me practically speaking i i tend to five acres i'm not solving world hunger i'm not even solving washington hunger i'm not even putting a dent in to malnutrition um in whatcom county like not even like i have no delusion that i'm doing that but for the people that participate in an alternative way to engage natural resources and to genuinely follow the process of cultivating land, planting seeds, nurturing those seeds, harvesting the fruit from those seeds, 
preparing the, the, the fruit from those seeds, breaking the fruits of those seeds and sharing them, consuming them in a closed loop, they are genuinely and fully realizing an alternative to the industrial food system that is utterly broken and I will say publicly serves death more than it does life. Wow. I'm not changing. We aren't going to change. We, we as a singular group of people are not moving that ship in a new direction. Right. But in the reality that we embody in the neighborhoods that we live in, we, we are practicing an alternative reality that we do, that are, we, we are convinced is a type of solution. Right. And so to sort of bend back to the question about my children, right? Mm. Like we don't have some like catechesis time, like my new awakening about the frontiers of my children hearts as this place where I can realize my creative call to ministry right. doesn't mean I spend more time in devotions with my children. Right. But it does mean that I must be deliberate in bringing them along and seeing what an embodied alternative looks like. And for yeah. us, yeah, they get to see that every morning that they husband their animals. Sure. And every time we harvest lettuce and share a salad with a group of 15 and we can say all 17 ingredients came from our shared work and our common stewardship of this land. Right. Like, wow. and so almost, you know, th there's no theoretical here, right? The catechesis is an, an embodied ex multi-sensory experience of an alternative, right? Wow. They, ca yeah. they literally cannot eat because it's by the way almost impalatable iceberg lettuce <laughs> because yeah. there's because there's no space for iceberg lettuce in the kingdom of god did i just say that <laughs> <laughs> i think that might be the name of this episode <laughs> there's no space for iceberg. right so That's so for me so so for me um you know those three three parts of the pie create a braid that you know it's making sense of, of this alt alternate reality that we're trying to, 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 to embody, to practice. Right. And, and the more I read the gospels, heck, the more I read the, the trajectory of the entire um, narrative of scripture, the more I see the people of God as broadly or narrowly as one would like to define that, the more I see them like wrangling with everyday mundane you know mm. sort of variables and trying to practice an alternative adherence to you know a different reality right yeah. and you know this is the this is like the tension on in the exodus out of egypt like egypt was so deeply implanted in the hearts of the israelites mm. and it was like the ten commandments like we only know it as the, the ugly you know little monograph in the front of a you know a, a you know a courtroom or something like that but it was a radical alternative economy, a yeah. radical alternative way of organized human society that was anti-slavery and anti-human trafficking and anti-scarcity and anti-poverty, right? Like if you read it yeah. closely, in contrast to slavery, the embodiment of human flesh for the ownership and productivity of an economy that will never be satisfied. Oh my gosh, right? So even the Israelites... We're like practicing, like yeah. trying to practice and body an alternative reality in a very microcosmic way. Yeah. Right. Um, that's all. That's all I'm doing. That's all we're trying to do as a form of church planting. Yeah. Right. And so for the next church down the road or the next 75 churches, it might have nothing to do with iceberg lettuce or, you know, or, or whatever organic permaculture practices or, you know, goat dairies. But it might have everything to do with creating, I don't know, uh, 
alternative local currency because there's really beautiful places people that are or communities of people that have done that and like literally pulled entire communities out of poverty because they're reimagining an economics in a microcosmic fashion yeah or whatever healthcare you pick the big system i don't care yeah. i mean it doesn't matter and when god's people gather the church is manifest where an alternative reality is being imagined and practiced and yeah. massaged into existence yeah so yeah, that's awesome, man. If there ever, ever there was a fire hose of excellence, uh, this was that <laughs> Aud- audibly. So and so, uh, yeah. I I think that's a that's probably a good place to to sort of wrap things. I uh, I always ask, and and for that matter, we always ask uh, if there's anything that um, that was left on the table that you thought needed uh, to be mentioned and or things that you're a part of that we should be on the lookout for. Where can we find either you or things that you're a part of in sort of digital spaces? How can we support what you're doing? Uh, obviously, uh, Foreshadow Magazine, from which this podcast uh, emerges, is an online literary magazine uh, that does Christian spirituality. So I'm sure we would love to feature some of your creative efforts as they are written. Um, and, uh, and that's something I'm sure you and Josh can follow up about, but yeah, tell us a little bit about where we can find things about you and, or your, the, the various enterprises and, uh, countercultural is not the right word, but, uh, reimagined manifestations of the kingdom of God. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> um, l- l- I'll leave you with w- one thing or the listeners with one thing, um, that's just sort of fresh on my mind because I've been meditating on it recently and it connects to the conversation and then i'll tell you where i live in the interwebs um howard thurman the 20th century preacher activist and mystic um and said something along these ways along these lines as it relates to vocation um calling is essentially what makes you come alive because what the world needs it needs people to come alive and and that's not in some like ecstatic kind of heightened you know sensitivity way or some like July 4th sort of like you know kind of celebratory with fireworks kind of way but i think of what he said as profoundly meaningful to alive deep within oneself right and that is not without encountering darkness challenge our shadow self Mm. Our idiosyncratic kind of demons, air quotes, right? And when we are willing to enter into those dark corners and sit there and learn from them, I think we are taking the necessary vocational risk and truly hearing what God's voice has for us from within. Yeah. One one little 10-second thing. One of my best friends um, and therapists from Hawaii after I left said this when I was in a really dark season, he said, Ryan, if you keep running from it, it will never teach you. Mm. You must sit with it. Yeah. And I pictured blowing all the air out of my lungs and in the pressure of the deep end of a swimming pool, that moment, that like 10 seconds of relaxation when you can sit Indian style and have a little tea party. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you, sitting Indian style in the depths of your dark deep end and let it teach you. And there I believe is what Howard Thurman meant. When we get glimpses of hope there, 
we truly are beginning to hear a vocation. And that applies not to just pastoring, that applies to every living being, every soul, right? And that's, mm. that's, that's beautiful, right? And so all I'm doing is just continuing to say yes to what brings me alive, you know, as it relates to reckoning with my failures and darkness. And ultimately, you know, the, the cracks and failures of, you know, the church that couldn't hold that, couldn't hold right. the pain. Right. So um, I so appreciate the conversation, Will. I really, really do. Um, if any of the listeners want to, you know, see my work or, or engage me or send me a note or answer the question that was in the middle of this episode, yeah, yeah. Um, they could find me and pretty much a link to everything I got go- I have going on um, at ryanfasani.com. Um, there's links connecting to some of the books I've written and some of the projects I'm working on and, and some other folks I'm partnering with and doing some creative stuff, but awesome. it's all linked, linked one way or another through ryanfasani.com. And we'll be sure to put that up, uh, with the publication of this episode as well. So Ryan, man, thank you so much for, for taking time again. And this has been just absolutely, uh, uh, insightful and illuminating and thought provoking and all the other cool words I could say about it. So, um, yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, man. Peace, my friend. It was good chatting. Foreshadow is an online spiritual literary magazine rooted in the Christian faith. Our website is foreshadowmagazine.com, and we are on various social media platforms. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to now, and be sure to share it through your own social channels. That's the forecast for today.